Welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast. Uh, my name is Ross Bennett. I'll be the host for you today. Long time since I've been hosting and very delighted today to have um, a guest with me that I've worked for for a number of years now, for maybe four years, I think, Aussie, um, within QPR and also at London that we'll touch upon between this podcast. So I'll let Aussie introduce herself um, in a minute, but she's the, um, the lead psychologist at QPR Academy in a minute and she'll go through the different roles and and the journey she's taken to get here so far but just before we delve in I just want to say a big um, thank you to our sponsors uh, Ripped.app who have come on board again for us for a second term Um, so delighted to have them on board they're a platform that can aid coaches sports scientists SSE coaches around a whole different um, uh, range of, of services around programs monitoring, uh, tracking athletes and, and players remotely. And they're a fantastic service that we've continued to use here at, at Daily Sports Science. So massive thanks to Ripped, um, who are sponsors for, for this podcast and, and coming on board with us again for this term. Okay, Ozzy, so uh, I briefly mentioned you there, but I think it'd be great for listeners to just hear your journey and you just let the listeners know exactly um, kind of your journey, how you got into this role. What did we say the name of this podcast was going to be? It was something quite funny. <laughs> oh yeah, I can't even remember. Playing with, playing with mind, your mind or something like yeah, that. That's it. Yeah. So it's it's a site based playing with your mind, a bit tongue in cheek, but yeah, I think it's great for listeners to hear of of your expertise and and especially from a coaching perspective, um, how how they can get info from you. So if you don't mind running through your journey, I think it'd be fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for having me today. Um, and like you said I'll just run through kind of my academic and how I got into sports psychology and then also um, as a player as well um, how sports psychology has kind of uh, influenced and played a part in my um, netball career. Um, So I first did an undergraduate in psychology and early childhood studies uh, thinking I wanted to work with specifically with children Um, and um, towards the end of that degree I kind of started finding out a bit more about sports psychology and realised that, especially as I'd been playing netball, um, it was just something, I knew sport was always something I wanted to do and have as part of my career. Um, So identifying sports psychology as something that I could do was really, um, really quite profound for me. So at the end of my undergrad degree, decided not going to do child psychology anymore. I'm going to focus more on sports psychology. Um, So I got a master's in psychology just because I felt like I needed a bit more of an understanding of all the psychological principles, having split my undergrad undergrad degree into two um, with the sport and early childhood, with the psychology and early childhood um, studies rather. And then I did a second master's in sport and exercise psychology, um, which led me to where I am now, currently a trainee about one and a half months out from qualifying. Um, and I've been, um, as Ross mentioned, working at QPR with him um, in the academy for about, I think it's been about three years now, actually. Um, started with a whole team of trainees and a supervisor here. Um, and as time progressed, you know, I've now, like Ross said, um, I'm now the lead psychologist at the academy, which has been a, it's been a challenge. It's been an adjustment, um, especially still being a trainee, you know. Um, but I think it's really helped me develop my career um and kind of my knowledge as well now that I'm working in a broad range of areas so I'm working with injured players I'm working with people that have been released I'm working with um people that have just signed to do their um scholar years so it's given me a broad range of experience um to to put under my belt and also working with coaches as well which I think is really important and I know we'll delve into a bit later on 
but um, I think it's it's been really it's been really great working at QPR um, just to develop that experience. I've also done bits with kind of grassroots netball teams, uh, regional netball teams, some rowers, um, Gaelic football, which again we'll speak about, and then um, a, a one-off session with uh, a team in the Champions League. So getting some more experience under my belt um, as I go through. As a player, um, I'm currently, the last season I played, which was just before COVID, I was in Premier League One netball. Um, so that's a national level. Um, and I kind of got through netball quite quickly. So I played at university, um, overheard my coach actually saying that she thought I could be really great. And I was like, right, I've got to make it now. Um, and so I joined a club when I finished my undergrad and kind of rise through the ranks in that club. And um, yeah, I made it to the Prem team, which is it's really good but also really scary at how quickly it happened because um, you don't really get much time to settle into a team and to get to know your teammates, which I think is really important when you're kind of constantly rising through the ranks. And so I think sports psychology for me has been really um, important in just remaining resilient, knowing what I want to achieve, what my goals are, um, and also learning how to develop as a player more purposefully and with more intent. I think that's that's really fascinating, Ozzy. About so, just so people understand, that's the the league below the Super League, right? So, second yeah. division, old money's term in football and stuff like that. Absolutely, which is a very high standard. So, I think that's that's a credit to, to you, first of all. Also, is it made you see so as a player when you go through different experiences and you mm -hmm. experience things from coaches and, like you say, you've had to have a lot of resilience. But then seeing the the support staff side of how how players are spoke about um, in both a positive light and sometimes, unfortunately, a negative light in, mm -hmm. in decision as well. Has, it, has that had a big impact on you and how you view yourself in your sport? Um, I think netball and other sports are very different from football where a lot of my experience has been had. So within netball, it's kind of, I wouldn't say not as organised, but at the level that I play, because it's not as professionalised as football, you don't have that much support staff. So you're definitely doing a lot of um, the work for yourself, where it, whether it's sports science, whether it's physio, you kind of have to um, find your own resources. However, uh, working within football, it's definitely made me more aware of how difficult it is for actually support staff to sometimes make those decisions because you're still talking about people, you're still making decisions about people's careers and futures. And within football, more kind of, um, it's more impactful than maybe netball might be. So it's definitely given me an awareness of kind of the different sides of it, um, but also what my role is to make it more easy for the players and also to make sure that coaches and support staff are doing it in the most appropriate way. Yeah, good answer. I think there's a huge parallels with maybe netball and Gaelic football, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of a lot of the listeners will be club level Gaelic football coaches who have very limited financial resource and support would be a coach, maybe a physio. So we'll get into the stuff in terms of what the coaches could maybe do for yeah. their teams a bit later on. So Ozzy, uh, quite a broad um, a question, but I just wanted to chuck you in to start off with. So what does sports psychology mean to you? Um, and what's his impact, taking it from its original psychological like term, mm -hmm. what's his impact that it can have in the sporting environment? Right. So you often hear people using kind of mental skills training in um, kind of exchange with sports psychology. And that's not to say that sports psychology doesn't kind of entail some sort of mental skills training and learning about developing different mental, um, mental skills. But I think what you've said is really important that it is originally taken from 
psychology and applied psychology. And I think sometimes we forget that sports psychologists and sports psychology is psychology first. It's not uh, just because it's got the sport in it, it doesn't de uh, take away from the fact that it is psychology and it is working with people, kind of their development, their social development, um, sometimes the neurobiology. So how teenage brains work and how that influences the way they learn. So I think it's really important to understand that sports psychology is psychology, uh, but it's just in the sport world, just like business psychology would be working with corporate organizations or occupational psychology would be working in that specific field. Sports psychology is psychology just within a sport or exercise context. Yeah, really interesting to say that because I had something later on to speak about, but it's quite prevalent now. I've had a lot of discussions with my boss here, you know, and, and we've had lots of discussions amongst us at the department. And I think sometimes there's a feeling that psychology can be, like with all due respect, this is in a respectful way, more mm -hmm. of a counselling mm -hmm. service. And they think that that's completely different to the sports psych world. But mm -hmm. actually getting the person, the individual right from a wellbeing perspective and making sure their head's right not even talking about the context of the sport it's going to have mm -hmm. an impact to the sport right so do, do, you, do you see the two are really linked or do you see avenues where there is a niche for like real sports performance psychology if you like and then the kind of as you said the well-being and and the psychology stuff first i think it's absolutely linked they're inextricably linked you are dealing with humans at the end of the day and humans have to perform whether it's at an elite level or just in day-to-day -day life everyone is always performing and I think if we take away the well-being side of it you'll come up with those classic cases of people developing mental health illnesses or burnout or stuff like that and then ultimately I would agree if you take away the performance side of it it just becomes sort of um it, it loses its elite nature it loses its performance side so you can't have one without the other I'd say I think they both lend themselves to one another um, but I think ultimately dealing with human beings, you have to understand them as individuals and how they're thinking and feeling because that is what enables them to perform. And without doing that, you aren't going to be able to get the best out of them. For sure. It's a really good answer, Ozzy. So what do you think then are like the little details or the extra bits that are added in sport that might make it different to someone seeing a, a psychologist or, or a counsellor outside of, of the sport? So I think... Being a sports psychologist, you are often embedded into the culture of the um, organization. And so you have those nuanced understandings of what happens. So you know what happens at training, you know a bit about injury and how that specifically influences kind of um, a person's well-being. So not to say that a counselor wouldn't understand that, but you just have a more in detail or in depth understanding of, okay, this means this and they might get released and what does that mean for their future and all the different things that kind of need to be put in place to help an individual deal with sport as an organization, sport as a kind of microcosm of society, if, if you will. Perfect. And this might be one that, <laughs> not controversial, but where does the care, where does the care stop? So like, obviously you mentioned there a lot of retain and release, but once the player leaves the building um, essentially they're not under the remit of yourself anymore um, mm -hmm. but them going into society there could still be psychological things going on like how logistically how difficult is that for aftercare and what's your views around that yeah that's a really tricky one and we've seen in kind of news recently what's happened to some players that have 
um, unfortunately been released and then the out um, the outcome of it all for them hasn't been um, great. So I think it is really difficult to understand what is the responsibility of a club once they're not there, um, they're not yours, like you said. But I think one thing that we can do as members of a club is to support them while they're here so that they build those skills to deal with being released or transitioning out of a career or to another club. But also um, there are sports psychologists that work independently and have an understanding of um, the kind of things that happen in a sports organization. And so it's maybe for us to make ourselves more known and kind of shout a bit more about the profession and say, we are here, we are able to provide support on a one-to-one -one basis outside of your organization. Um, I also know that there are kind of um, organizations, charities that are starting up for uh, sports in general um, to help athletes dealing with any sort of mental health um, mental health issue or just kind of the transition out of sport, the release, retain kind of the questions that come around that. Um, and so it's, it might require a bit of digging for an individual to find out what's available outside of their sport club or their environment, but there are resources that are available um, to them that are more specific to sport, which they can utilise. Great stuff. Do you see that like consultancy space being filled more and more? Like over the net, as it got bigger, is it going to get bigger and bigger? You think? Absolutely. And as the profession kind of grows and there are more routes to becoming a sports psychologist, I think we will continue to see um, an increase in consultancies, an increase in individuals who understand um, sport and what it entails and um, the things that come out of it for players and you know the stresses that impact players and all that stuff, their families as well. It's not just them, it's, yeah. you know, academy players, it's their families, it's their parents, it's their brothers and sisters. Um, if you're in first team or, you know, it's your wife, it's your child, it's, it's not just you. And so as it grows, there is definitely um, a space for us, but also I'm seeing that there are a lot more people coming into that space, which is good to see. Well, that's great. I think that you hit the nail on the head about the transition period. So like with, I think QPR are quite good in the sense of letting players know early. Um, it's yeah. always a horrible part of the business to say that they're not going to be kept on. But I think then you've got a period of transition that you can really prepare them for when they leave the club initially so that they're, they're, they're ready to deal with, with life after that club. Doesn't mean they're not going to find a new club or, right. or move on in their life. Um, Ozzy, just moving on a little bit around, because I know you've done like quite a bit of research amongst the, you know, staff and, and stuff here around mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a topic that's very prevalent. And especially within this, this, you know, COVID situation, it's come to the forefront, I think. Can you just speak a little bit around the work you've done within this space and maybe how, how it applies and how important it is to to not only sport but I guess guess society as well. Sure. So like you said, I did some research quite recently on uh, mental health literacy um, amongst coaches and support staff. Um, I did this study at QPR. So we ran a uh, mental health literacy program, myself and some colleagues, um, and I evaluated the outcomes of it. So did it help increase knowledge of mental health um, illnesses? Did it help increase confidence to support people with mental health illnesses? Um, did it help increase understanding and knowledge of what mental health illnesses were and you know the outcomes of it were really strong it showed that it was effective it showed that there is a need and a desire for um, coaches and support staff to learn about this because more 
as it, as it grows um, and as people become more aware of it and its occurrence in sport, people are kind of awakened to the fact that they can't shy away from it anymore. It's not something that can be kind of put in the corner and we'll deal with this in isolation. People are starting to understand that it's kind of a part of sport. The stresses that I mentioned before, so injury, um, concussion, all those different things that release retain, those are things that really influence people, um, people and their emotions and their kind of well-being. And having an understanding of that and what the outcome of that could be in terms of mental health and mental health illnesses is really important for coaches to, to um, understand. It also showed that there are still some barriers. So um, especially within football, it's kind of um, the question of performance and well-being, which we spoke about. It's kind of that conversation on what well, if you're one, you can't be the other. And I think the more football and people footballers come out and say okay I've experienced this and I survived and I've gotten through it and I'm still an elite professional and I'm still at the top of my game I think the more that people do that the more demystified it becomes um the less stigma will become is around it and I think the more that we talk about it as well and realize that it's not just something that happens outside or is a one-off event that actually it can be um a multi a multiple time uh, event in in a club or in an academy um, I think the more we talk about that and understand that and realize that um, the more we can do about it really if it's in isolation and we keep it hidden and um, keep stigmatizing it and keep kind of brushing it to the side uh, the more powerful it becomes and for the individual and then for the club and collective as a whole yeah great stuff Ozzy I think um, those workshops alongside the research that you did were fantastic in educating you know everybody um, around the different uh, mental health kind of conditions or illnesses or the mm -hmm. stuff that people can get but more importantly I think the triggers of those because like I've I've been through you know I'm very open in it I've been through when I was playing as a young kid in the academy um, an eating disorder that was triggered mm -hmm. from a coach that that wanted to change people's diets and didn't have any real knowledge in that just wanted mm -hmm. people to eat well and the intention from the coach was to make sure that you're recovering and and eating well but you know it's the individual personalities of the players that can then lead them down different paths how how do you see that um within within your experiences with different coaches and like do you think there's a lot more to be done around the, the words that coaches use and the language coaches use to, to 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 stop these things occurring in young players absolutely i think um there's a, a large onus on coaches to understand that they are ultimately the gatekeepers to players so they're the people that kind of spend the most time with them should really know them in depth know their personality what makes them tick kind of have that personal relationship with players and so having that responsibility also means that they need to be aware of the things that they're letting off, whether that's kind of consciously or subconsciously. Mm -hmm. Having an awareness of their body language, of what they're saying, of the tone with which they're saying things, because that can really influence people. We often don't realise, um, and, and you know, we say this a lot, a lot of what you say, a lot of what you give off isn't verbal. It's the way you say, the way you carry yourself, it's the way... Uh, your face is it's the way those different things that aren't verbal those are what really impacts on what people pick up on so I think there's a lot that coaches can do as gatekeepers of players and mental health for players um, to actually learn um, about the triggers like you mentioned but also how their words can hold weight with players.
Yeah, totally agree. And, and you know, from support staff, but even this year, since I've been doing more of an active coaching role, like you're constantly aware of how you're projecting yourself. And I think coaches need more accountability on that because it's too easy to do something that's going to affect one, maybe two players and not be accountable for that. Like where's yeah. they need to be held accountable for, for to some degree for that. A big one is that I've spoke about Aussie on, on numerous podcasts before is about nutritionists mm-hmm. and like, especially around because I've gone through that experience, the sensitivity of food and, and the relationship different people have with food is, is massive. And we've seen it over the years with certain cases, like, I feel the nutritionists need to start working closer with the psychs or at least having formalized education around that sort of language and behavior change and stuff around that. Do you think, I mean, yeah, do you think there's a scope for that to be a crossover there? Absolutely. And um, I was actually speaking with a nutritionist here at QPR last week and we were looking at a paper together that um, was looking at kind of the psychological and nutritional um, impacts um, and benefits that we could gain from each other and especially um, in terms of return to sport post-COVID. So I know here that I've learned so much from working with a nutritionist, not as um, anything that's required, but just by virtue of being curious and wanting to develop myself. And I know that he would probably say the same. We have conversations with each other. We're quite free with each other and our knowledge, um, like to catch up about what this might mean for this player and kind of do mini case studies, if you will. Um, So I definitely think there is room for there to be an overlap between nutrition and um, and psychology, especially with injured players. You know, Um, often when players get injured, they think I shouldn't eat so much because I'll get fat and then I won't be able to. Actually, it's eating that helps you restore your body. You need that fuel to help your body recover. And so it's me understanding that from a nutritional point of view and speaking with the nutritionist and then when I'm having one-to-ones with those injured players relaying that information and kind of using my psychological um, skills and my awareness of how to speak with people and all those different skills that I've learned to actually help them understand that eating isn't the problem it's um it's going to help them in their in their rehab for sure. And I think it's about, especially with the support staff and coaches, the openness for everybody to learn off each other and just having mm-hmm. that openness in your, I guess, that growth mindset that, that you want to improve and, and take the best of each other. Absolutely. Um, 100%. Moving on to a term now, Aussie, that um, I think I think this goes into now the performance side and the sports performance side. I think mm-hmm. you can do this in everyday life. I agree. But I think it's something that, you know, yourself and the psychology team previously has done really well in driving this. And it's this concept around purposeful practice right. um, and speaking a little bit about the philosophy here which is based around technical excellence there's a lot of repetition of close skill stuff that we feel is the foundation for technical basics I guess Um, it's easy to to get bored and to go through the motions and for players and coaches um, to to not drive something at, at the right standard could you talk a little bit around purposeful practice and the different things that link into it to making sure that every part of training is is um is accountable and you're maximizing what you're getting out of it. Absolutely. So purposeful practice, um, also known as deliberate practice, is um, basically being intentional with the way you practice. So I'm sure all of us will have heard about the 10,000 hour rule, about if you practice for 10,000 hours, you will become an expert in whatever you've practiced in. And that's not to say that's not true, but it's more about the way you practice um, and how, how you practice the thing that you're trying to become an expert in. So whether you do that 10,000 hours, if you do it just 
anyhow so you know you don't put intent into it you're just kind of uh, playing around throwing a ball around for um, argument's sake you're not going to get as much out of it as if you set a focus on what you want to get out of the sessions that you're using that 10,000 hours for so for example um, let me use my netball um, my netball knowledge for example if I wanted to get better at shooting um, I could go to a post for 10,000 hours and just throw the ball and aim for the goalpost and hope that it would go in. That is not purposeful practice. Purposeful practice is going there and saying, okay, today I'm gonna to focus on bending my knee. That is the skill I'm going to focus on when I'm shooting and I'm gonna get feedback on that. So did I bend my knees enough times? When I got the shot in, how did I bend my knees? What did it feel like? Those are the things that you want people to start um, thinking about when they're developing purposeful practice. Um, within purposeful practice, there are kind of another, a number of key things that you want to also think about. Um, getting out of your comfort zone. So if, again, using that analogy of shooting, I'm not always gonna shoot from right under the ring because that's not gonna help me get better. I'm gonna use a range of different areas from the shooting D to help me get better at um, long range shooting, at close up shooting, at mid range shooting. Um, the other thing that you want to also um, involve in your purposeful practice, which I mentioned is feedback. So you want to get feedback either from yourself or someone that's watching you. So um, how did I do this? What did I do to make it work? What do I need to do better in order to make it work? Those are some of the questions um, that you want to ask. And then the other thing that I've mentioned intention that is really setting a focus, a specific focus that you can measure. So um, for example, mine would be shooting and bending my knees. That would be my specific focus that I'm focusing on, on for that one hour of that 10,000 hour. Um, and that is what I'm going to measure myself on at the end of that session. So those are just a few things that you can um, start to, to implement with your players or even with yourself as coaches. What do I want to get out of this session to develop myself as a coach? Um, those are some of the things that you can start to implement to, to help development. Really good detail. And I think that the, the feedback stuff comes into the journals that we use here. So the players having to, you know, not only kinesthetically feel that the different technical elements that you spoke about, but having some sort of written feedback after and, and shining the light on the technique. I think coaches need to get better then at the detail, coaching the detail and telling the kids the detail or the players, because if they don't know what the different technical requirements are, then how are they meant to really focus on the, the, the detail and, and practice purposefully, I guess. Absolutely. Um, Ozzy, that's great stuff. I think it links on a little bit now to, to where I kind of want to take it to when you ended up in, in, in Gaelic football, um, which probably something four or five years ago, you never thought you'd, you'd be working in. And I, I was the same, to be honest, until Kieran asked me to come in. So, yeah, so obviously Kieran asked you to come in and, and do some work at London. Um, I'm interested with all your experience you had as a player in netball and then having a look at the support side of things in, in professional football how that then, how that, how you viewed London and Gaelic football, which is still perceived as amateur, um, albeit inter-county level, trying to take it to that next level. What were your initial views on the sport and and the culture and things when you walked in? What were the massive differences and what you, you saw? Yeah, so um, definitely some parallels between netball in terms of the lack of professionality, even though you are kind of at an elite level. Um, so that really um, hit home with me and it, it kind of, um, yeah, it hit home, you know, the not having uh, support staff like you'd have at the academy or having people that have day jobs and then come to training in the evening. That really um, struck me as something that I was familiar with. 
Um, so that was really nice to come into and have an environment that I felt like, okay, I understand why they need this almost because there is such little time that they want to get as much out of it as possible. Um, and I think wherever you are that someone wants sports psychology, I think that's brilliant because it shows an openness. It shows and that growth mindset, wanting to learn something new, wanting to add an extra element of kind of sport and performance um, to players and to coaching and to the club. I think um, coming into Gaelic football, um, I'd never really watched it, never really heard of it. Um, again, saw parallels in the way it was played and some of the drills that they did with netball, which was nice again. Um, but one thing that I did notice um, in terms of culture, and again, that's probably because of um, it not being kind of elite and not having as many resources as say football, but I was one of three women in the, in the club, so as support staff. And when I walked in, I noticed that my colleague that I worked with as a psychologist, she was um, the second female. And then I believe the nutritionist was the, was the other female. And I think I noticed that it was the beginning of my training experience. So there was so much going on for me anyway. Um, I was trying to figure out whether I knew what I was actually doing or whether what I was doing was beneficial. I knew sports psychology was beneficial, but having, I didn't have, the understanding of what I was doing and then my own philosophy of practice um, when I came into Gaelic football. So I was really working with my colleague to try and develop that. I think uh, we were quite limited in the time that we spent with players and with staff. And I think that was maybe one of the downfalls because um, again, limited resources, limited time. Um, and I think the only saving grace for that was that they were adults. And so they could just grasp the concepts and run with it if they wanted to. Um, and I think that was on them to do. We provided the content and then they could decide whether they'd want to run with it. Um, if I was to do it again, I think a bit more time with players to actually develop those skills and an understanding of kind of what we were trying to teach them in terms of purposeful practice, in terms of, in terms of strength, in terms of communication. I think that would have been um, really good to help us kind of um, cement the learning that we had started there. Um, and then something else in terms of culture that I noticed was that not only was I the only um, one of three females, but I was the only black person and that really resounded with me and it's something that I've reflected on just because within sports psychology it's actually quite a male dominated sport and so being, being the antithesis of both, so being a woman and then being a black woman, um, it's something that I've had to look at my position on and being like okay how can I influence this space being a minority in the space. Um, and so coming into Gaelic football, it was something that I had to navigate. It's something that I had to um, become comfortable with in myself being um, someone that stuck out and someone that was very obviously different. Not to say that I was called out on it or that anything necessarily happened. I mean, there was one game that um, I did think would this have happened if I was a, a white woman because my colleague was a white woman and you know, we had a bit of a different experiences at one of the games that we went to, but it's something that I've had to navigate in terms of the culture in Gaelic football, but also what if this happens in a different sport? How will I react? How will I navigate it? How will I show my worth outside of what my um, gender or race is? Yeah, really fascinating. And, and thanks for your honesty with that, Ozzy. Um, do, you, do you think then as an industry, as a society, it probably goes deeper than just the sport, like there are more opportunities and, and there's more, um, 
I guess, openness for yourself as a black woman practitioner to, to get experience, to hopefully, you know, receive no discrimination, whether that be obvious or subtly, like you said, do you think things are moving in the right direction personally, or, you know, have we got a long, long way to go? I do think things are moving in the right direction. Um, I do think it's partly to do with personnel at a club. So who is there and who can make those decisions? So I'm really fortunate to be here at QPR where I feel completely comfortable just because there is so much diversity within the club, both in terms of uh, race, but then also I'm not one of three uh, women in in the club. Um, I think we've come a long way in terms of um, diversity and inclusion in terms of sport and um, practitioner um, diversity and inclusion, but there is a long way to go. Like I said, sports psychology is a male, white, a white male dominated field. Um, but there are hubs where, you know, um, we as a, a, a community of black people who are practitioners um, and who want to further ourselves within this industry kind of can figure out how we do that and how we implement um, techniques and strategies to get ourselves in because ultimately wherever you go there is going to be diversity and so there needs to be I feel a representation of that within uh, personnel within professionals um, in clubs and then in the wider population as well. Yeah totally agree Ozzy well said Um, just going back then to the London stuff and and the limited time you had with the players just so the listeners know what sort of stuff did you do for the players in your limited time? I know we had some workshops, um, probably because you'll explain, but their education from a psychology perspective was probably zero, never been exposed to it. And then it might have been the individuals. What did you prioritise and focus on with the limited time that you had? Um, so from my memory, I think we prioritised individual work. So we had, I think we gave four workshops um, on purposeful practice, values communication and one other one that has just slipped my memory but we did four workshops um and then um lots of individual work so my colleague who was kind of a specialist or is a specialist in injury um, and injury psychology um she worked with the majority of the injured players long-term injureds um and really that was where she was and then I kind of worked as I said it was the beginning of my training experience so I was um, working more specifically with people that had um, kind of confidence issues or just wanted to gain a bit of resilience. So it was me teaching them um, skills. It was me um, understanding their values and how they could use their values on the pitch. It was me um, understanding their strengths and then trying to relay their strengths into what they do well and how they could do it again in terms of that purposeful practice and repetition. Um, so that's how we split up kind of focused heavily on the one-to-one stuff with a few workshops here and there and then we did quote um training observations as well to kind of try and implement those um learning learning bites that we delivered yeah fantastic how were those individuals then selected for one-to-ones um so the coaches would identify kind of the players that were um kind of their stars if you if you if you will um, and all those that they thought would benefit more from psychological support. So if they had psychological support, they could be here. Um, so that's how kind of those one-to-ones were um, selected. Um, and then with the injured, it was kind of long-term injury, that's six weeks plus, um, they would see my colleague. Um, short-term injured, they'd probably have some one-to-one support either with myself or with my colleague. Um, but that's kind of the selection process that was used to 
to get people one-to-ones. And do you think from a culture perspective, players bought into it? Did you feel any resistance from players? Mixed bag? I think it was mixed. I think there are some players who um, really care and believe that that sport is a mental thing, not just a physical thing. And so they will come and talk to you. Those are the players that will talk to you on the sidelines or will have a chat with you and ask you, what do you think about this? Those are the people that almost take ownership for their learning. And then there are the people that heavily rely on coaches telling them what to do. And I think those are the people that you need to try and get more buy-in from. So trying to get them to understand that their development is also their, um, in their hands, basically. Coaches can only do so much, tell you what to do, try and make sure that you're doing it there and then. But more often than not, coaches aren't seeing you every day in that environment. Coaches are only seeing you for a couple of hours a week. So what you do outside of there and you taking ownership for yourself is what's going to determine whether you are a star athlete or you are just kind of making the cut by the skin of your teeth. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially when they go onto the pitch. You think of Gaelic football, it's a huge pitch. The instructions mm-hmm. you can get to players are very minimal. And they've got, like every sport, they've got to think real time about problem solving. And, and those players that could do that were the ones that, I guess, excelled a little bit more. Maybe we missed a trick there, Ozzy, with, with focusing on, on, on the better players. <laughs> um, what, one of the terms you spoke about there was about resilience. And, mm-hmm. and it's a term that, you know, we have it as one of the three R's here that you and Misha and, and stuff have set up prior. Um it's a big term that's banded around, especially now and, and even on coaches' courses. It's, it's like the big buzzword that they use from a psychology perspective. What does it mean to you, like from a, a, defin- a definitive perspective, but also mm-hmm. real life? And how do you go about developing that? Sure. So resilience is basically that bounce back ability. Um, in terms of definition, it's about getting up when you have failed or when you perceive you have failed or when you've kind of not made the cut. And although I think we have an understanding of what that definition is, it really amazes me as to how, even though we understand that it's about failing and then getting back up after you failed, people still associate resilience with toughness and not failing and just constantly going almost to that place of burnout. And I think we need to have an understanding and just remember the actual definition. It's like you said, it's a buzzword, it's going around everywhere. And I think it's almost lost its actual meaning of, we are human. Part of the human experience is sometimes failing. It's sometimes being knocked down. It's sometimes not doing your best and being disappointed. But that's not the end of the story. You can choose whether you get back up again. And that is the place between getting knocked down and get back up again where resilience lives. And it's almost like you want to get knocked back or you want to fail because that's also where the learning happens. That's where you get better. That's where you understand what the difference between you doing it excellently and you kind of just making it is, that is the perfect place for you to learn. And so I think we also need to not shy away from failure or perceptions of failure, um, because actually that's where the magic happens in my opinion. Yeah, I was just about to say, it comes back to your analogy of you trying to practice your shooting and taking yourself out of that comfort zone where your success rate isn't high Mm -hmm. and actually internalizing what you need to do to improve on that. We have a concept here, uh, zone of proximal development, where you're trying to develop players in that zone where they're getting some success, but definitely getting some failure so they understand mm-hmm. what, what's going wrong around that. 
are we this this is uh, not controversial but this might be something that a bit of debate are we as a society now and especially from the older generation of players who are now coaching it's a big thing that they speak about from their experiences are we do we treat players and people and kids and everyone from all ages differently in society now that's having an effect on someone's resilience are they more um, dependent on coaches dependent on significant others outside of sport to to help them whereas back in the day from from what coaches would say you get on with it and you have to you have to kind of develop that resilience naturally otherwise you're you're going out the game Mm. where do you see that and the support that we give to players I actually think that's really interesting because that generation of people um that didn't have that much support we're seeing now that that's the generation that are actually saying they could have used a bit more support so um I think it's it's interesting that they're it's almost that they're saying one thing but actually their experiences are showing us something completely different and I'd almost frame that question a bit differently not are we doing too much but what can we do differently as support staff to ensure that we're promoting resilience so are we having an awareness of um, our players' mental states? Are we having an awareness of where they are emotionally? Kind of, do they have an emotional awareness? Are we using the right language? Um, are they interacting with their teammates properly or appropriately? Um, all these things that kind of influence resilience that coaches can definitely play a part in. We need to be ensuring that we actually have an awareness and an understanding of how to develop those skills in players because. Like I said before, coaches are the gatekeepers. They're there constantly with players. And so if coaches can see this and kind of see whether a, a, a player has the right mindset or needs to work on their emotional regulation or their um, ability to communicate better with their teammates, that is how you build um, resilience. I'm always kind of shy away from um, an understanding of anything psychology that says that we need to take away or that we're not doing enough of. We should focus on what we can do more of to promote resilience or to promote purposeful practice or whatever it is that an individual needs. Because when we focus on what a player needs rather than in terms of what they're not getting, that's where um, we can make the most difference. It's not necessarily always what we're not doing. It's something that we could do more of that is more beneficial for a player. Yeah, good stuff. I I think that brings me on to a point I was going to speak about later, but that coach interaction with the psychologist is probably Mm -hmm. an area that I think... um, isn't at the level where it could be to optimize this psychological kind of development in players. Um, and I think that's for a number of different reasons. I think, you know, resistance from coaches or, or, you know, a lack of awareness and understanding of the mental side of the game probably is the first mm-hmm. and foremost from coaches, but how do we, how do we break that down? Cause I think now psychologists have got really good relationships with players yeah. or as a whole, I'm speaking generally here, but um, how do we then go move into that, coaching side and really work closer with the coach to develop that holistic approach where do you see that going I think you've raised a really important question because we both both disciplines come with different skills so a coach has has in the past and can teach me about a sport that helps me with my practice likewise I can help a coach identify whether their language is helpful or not helpful to an individual and here we've done actually a lot of work. Um, We ran a range of communication workshops within the academy that um, was for parents, coaches and players to understand what was helpful communication and what wasn't helpful communication. So I think language and understanding what language is best to get the best out of players is one area that coaches and, and, and psychs can work together on. Another area 
is probably identifying all the work that we've done with players. So we've done stuff on emotional regulation, on personal practice, on all that stuff with players. It's getting coaches to have a buy-in to that. So understanding why that's important, how they can use it in their time. Because I've, like I've said several times here, they have the most time with players. So if they can get the right language and start using psychology language in coaching sessions or in the gym or wherever they might be, that is what's going to help embed psychology more into the culture of sport. So I think there is so much room for coaches and psychologists to work together and sports and support staff as well to work together in a kind of multidisciplinary way so that we can get the best out of players. Yeah, totally agree. We speak a lot about like ILPs here, individual learning plans and individual programs for players, technically, physically, and how we're going to get the best out of them each session. But I think that needs to come from a psychological perspective as well. What does that player need at this moment in time? How are we going to develop the skills of this player? I think that that's where we need to shift slightly. And the EPPP, it does has a lot of downfalls, but it might just be the um, the platform for an emergence of more psychology in yeah. sport in the next few years. And hopefully then, as you said, consultancy will rise off the back of it and hopefully become the norm, I guess, within most sports. Yeah. We might have touched upon it um, already, Ozzy, but what if you went into a, a team, you went into a new role, what three things would you work on would you like to work on as a general you you can talk about in the individualizing things as well if you want mm-hmm. to but what three things would you say i really want to focus on this i think this is important they haven't had psych- psychological support and then how would the coach assist you with developing those things it doesn't have to be three it can be whatever you think is most important um i think purposeful practice is at the top of that list people Um, athletes coaches we all need to learn and keep learning how to um, develop skill appropriately and I think purposeful practice is at the top of that list because it is both psychology and sport it's developing skill but it's also using kind of the psychology behind developing that skill so I think it's a really nice way to get buy-in first of all from people that might be a bit skeptical about sports psychology but it's also um, something that has been proven to help improve performance. So that would be probably my number one thing going into a new setting. Um, I think what's really important for both coaches, support staff and players as well is to have an understanding of their emotions and how that influences the way they think and behave and feel and and their physiology because um, and then also how how it affects other people's um, emotions and how they think, feel, and behave. Because we are we are social creatures. We thrive off having social connections and having those relationships. And there's this thing called emotional contagion, where if you're feeling something, I can also feel it too. Because that is how we are wired. Our brains are wired to couple together. And so I think having an awareness of where you are at and what you're giving off is really important, especially within team sports because it can so easily kind of catalyze other people's emotions. And then before you know it, you know, you see it in a game where someone gets angry and starts shouting and then someone else starts shouting. And before you know it, it's just everyone's kind of on different pages and you're not working as a unit or as a team. So I think emotional awareness is something that's really important for players, coaches, support staff um, to learn about, to understand um, and to really try and work on. And then the third thing following from that would probably be communication because 
um, sometimes you hear it again, like that analogy, people shouting at each other or not giving instructions in a specific way or just not um, helping their teammates as effectively as they could using communication. I think it's important that players, teammates, coaches, sports staff learn how to appropriately use language and communicate with one another so that performance um, and well-being is at the forefront of everyone's agenda. Yeah, very well put. I think it's interesting you said about the emotional regulation, emotional control. Obviously, the players are the ones we look at, staying in the now. And But you see, how many coaches do you see that are so emotionally invested? And the intention's right, because it's about they want to do right for the job. But, you know, showing obvious frustration, showing in maybe a, a negative way at times, especially in development, can then have a massive impact on the players and, you know, their psychological um, well-being and state and optimizing their performances is, is is not there then so it's true isn't it you just see so much. stability is quite a good key word i like yeah. stability in coaching especially yeah. at development level um no fantastic so how can a coach then how can just taking this to a scenario where a coach doesn't have access to psychological support how can they take these umbrella terms and maybe actively change their behaviors or think about what they're doing and saying to really optimise the state of these players from a psychological perspective? I think it's it takes a willingness to learn and an openness to want to do it. So if, for example, I went in and did a one-off session for an hour where I brought up these terms, um, someone that really wanted to develop in this area might try and find a book on it. Um, so a good book on purposeful practice um, is one by Ericsson and Paul. Um, the name I've now forgotten but if you google that you know or if you google purposeful and practice Ericsson's name will come up and you know that will kind of um catapult your journey into learning about purposeful practice um similarly with emotional awareness and communication there are so many different books and resources that coaches can get online you know google is it's so rich in resource that if we truly want to learn anything or find something out all we have to do is search those key terms. So I think number one, it takes a willingness and an openness to realize that you don't know everything as a coach. You might think that you know about a person's mental well-being or their state, but you are not a psychologist. You are not a, uh, a counselor or an expert in that area. You're an expert in a coach, as a coach, but you need to have that humility to say, okay, I need to work on this and learn a bit more about this um, area for my development as a coach but also for the impact that I have on players great stuff and I think an awareness of how you're like I spoke about before but an awareness of how what you're letting off through language and emotions and and and, and different ways as well thank you very much Ozzy last couple and, and I don't want to keep you too long I know it's, it's a working day for you here so <laughs> um big one you mentioned was around rehab and you mm -hmm. spoke about a colleague who was you know a specialist in that area and I think that's a, an area that the psychology department have developed really well here in terms of there's a huge need for it and a rationale for it but also putting in a system in place what are um why is rehab so important so why is rehab such a key um i guess period um that the psychology team needs to focus on and what does the player go through and then what sort of things do you do to to help that and assist the player and and put in place to to get them through that that phase so I think uh, particularly within football um, and any kind of sport where it's extremely competitive and you're going through the pathways, 
players very quickly develop an identity as a footballer. So you'll ask them, you know, you'll meet them on the street, what do you do? They won't say I'm a student. They won't say I'm X, Y, Z. They'll say I'm a footballer. I play football. And so developing that kind of single focused identity and then getting injured means that you have nothing else to fall back on or you haven't considered what else your strengths might be or who else you might be as an individual. And so that's why I think working with psychologists during the rehab process is so important because it helps you explore the opportunities that are available to you whilst you're doing that process or whilst you're recovering and getting back to where you want to be. But it also helps you almost develop another or under, an understanding of your other identity. So who are you outside of football? What do you like to do? What do you enjoy? Um, what, what would you do if you weren't playing football? All the questions that we don't ask because we're so focused on them making it or maybe even because we're scared to ask or even raise that question okay okay what if you don't make it what if what if you know you only get to academy and then that's it for you so I think going back to kind of injury it's it's understanding that injury takes a player out of the game um some people grieve during injury because it's like I'm not able to do what I want to do in terms of career, in terms of um, in terms of making it into the first team, for example, if it's a career-ending injury. So it's about understanding what a player needs in terms of developing their identity, in terms of what opportunities are available to them, what in terms of how else they might be able to learn whilst they're in rehab. So you might get into coaching, so you're still watching the game, so you're still developing the skill. You might watch your um, some clips of yourself so that you're kind of still getting that feedback in your brain about, okay, this is what I would do if I was in this situation. So rehab's really important uh, to work with a psychologist so that you're aware of what else you can be doing outside of rehab and outside of having this single-minded focus um, of just being a footballer. I think also, um, like you mentioned, there are different stages of rehab. So you've got the onset, you've got the rehab process, you've got kind of before you return to competition, which is full training, and then you've got competition. And you'll see a variety of things in these different stages. So in the beginning, um, I think it's a really important, on the, at the onset, to, at the onset of an injury, I think it's really important that you're kind of um, getting in there as quickly as possible as a psychologist, because you're learning about the person. It might be a person that you've never worked with before. So you just want to know a bit about them, what they like doing, what they are about kind of thing. During the rehab process, you might experience kind of boredom, lack of confidence, lack of motivation. And so those are kind of the things that you'd really be working on as a psychologist with an injured player to build those different elements of an, um, of a, of an individual so that when they do go back to playing or if they do go back to playing, those aren't kind of factors that will be stumbling blocks for them. As you get kind of through that rehab process towards kind of return to sport and return to full training, you might have um, players experiencing a bit of ambivalence. So um, I really want to go back. I'm excited to go back. Can't wait to go back, but I'm scared. I'm scared I might get re-injured. I'm scared that I've been out for too long. And so I won't be able to kind of um, keep up with my teammates. I'm scared that I'll have lost skill. I'm scared that I won't be fit. So there's, yes, I want to get back. And that's all I've been waiting for. But also there's fear of re-injury and fear of going back into sport because of the what ifs. And so that's kind of some of the stuff that we'd be working through with injured, injured players at that stage, kind of helping them navigate those, um, those feelings and working on skills that can help them 
um, overcome them. And then obviously when they go back into um, sport, it's just checking with them, checking in with them, making sure that they still have goals, that they know that it won't be kind of straight back to peak performance, that there are still stepping stones once they come back into sport. And it's about setting those goals that are small and manageable, that still take them out of their comfort zone as well. So that purposeful practice stuff, um, but small manageable goals that help them get back to that peak performance. Great stuff. Well done for taking us through that. Um, it's, it's a long process. I think it's important to note that the psychological state has a massive impact on the physiology as well. So like when they're in, like when you said they're returning to, to training, but they have that high level of fear and anxiety, like the stress hormone and the release of cortisol is going to put them at risk potentially of re-injury, even though like the physio and the sports scientists may have done everything physically they feel is appropriate for that player going through. So it's important to have that awareness, isn't it? So that when you're making decisions on players return, you're, you've got all the information at hand. Um, Absolutely. And I think it's also important that um, sports psychologists develop those relationships with players at the outset of injury, because developing that relationship also is another avenue for players to disclose that they're not feeling comfortable with being back or that they have some anxiety or that they have some tension. If you don't have this protocol where someone is working with a psychologist, it's very easy for that to be missed. Or if you don't have psychometrics or kind of um, someone that knows the, that physiology and psychology are interlinked, it's very easy to miss those signs and then go in, uh, a player goes in and gets injured on their first game back. So I think that again is really important for psychologists to develop good relationships, both with staff, but also with the players. 100%. And I'm going to going to be critical of coaches again, because uh, I think, as you said, they are the gatekeepers and it's important just because a player is injured, even a long term injury, your job is still to develop that player. Now, physically, they can't do the stuff on the pitch that you would normally do. So I think sometimes coaches forget that they still have a job to develop this player in other creative ways, using analysis, using tasks, get them involved in the coaching, as you said, um, because it's quite often a case you hear from players that they don't hear from a coach or don't talk to a coach practically for two, three months until they're back on the pitch. So I think there is responsibility there from the coach to, to step up, keep developing the player and also, you know, make sure they know you still care about them and they're not forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Because that lends to um, kind of the feelings of loneliness and isolation that players will feel when they're out. They're not with their teammates. They're not in that group or that bubble. And they might not be on the in, in with the inside joke. So having that coach make them still feel a part of that team is so critical for that psychological um, aspect of injury because injury is a big risk factor for mental health illnesses in, in players. Um, and if a coach isn't aware of that, which is why the mental health stuff is so important. If the coach isn't aware of that, they will not know that they still have a responsibility to that player. 100% well done Ozzy uh, well put last question from me and then uh, we'll, we'll wrap up um, differences between like you've worked with some senior players you've obviously experienced playing at, at different levels going through as a kid all the way up to, to adult what's the differences that you would look at then between working with a first team or senior player or an underage player coming through the ranks what are the, some key or subtle differences that you see within those populations I think for me, I think the content would stay the same. I think it's just about, first of all, um, changing it to their developmental age. So like I mentioned before, um, 
neurobiology, the brain development of a teenager is not the same as the brain development of someone that's 26 in the first team. So it's about understand having an understanding of that myself and understanding that behaviours that are seen at an academy level or at a uh, pathway level might be because of the neurobi neurobiology of uh, a 16 year old, for example. I think, like I said, the content would stay the same, but it's about delivering it in a way that is more relevant to the person. So for example, I might use more um, cultural um, analogies that are specific to a teenager at this age um, in terms of how I would interact with them in the psychology session or for someone that's working or playing at um, Gaelic football, I might use a work analogy because they are still working most of the day and then going to train um, at the end of the day. So I think the content would stay the same. It's just about pitching it to a level where um, everyone who is participating understands it um, to the best of their ability. Perfect. Ozzy, thank you very much for your time today. I think um, I got so much out of it just talking to you again. Um, and I think the listeners are going to get so much out from that from a psychological perspective and hopefully the start of, of this emergence of, of more psychologists and, and becoming more prevalent in, in different sports. So thank you so much for your time and coming on today. No, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Perfect. And a debut for you on a podcast? It is, it is. I'll definitely be doing more. So thank you for... Yeah, I think you put yourself in the shop window for bigger ones now. So we'll, we'll watch this space. Um, just for the listeners, I have to say thank you again very much uh, to Ripped, our sponsors, uh, Ripped.app. If you head over to Ripped.app as a listener, um, you'll be able to get some sort of promotion and they're offering a deal for our for our listeners of the podcast as well. And also for those that aren't members of, of dailysportscience.com, please head over to the website, have a look at the range of services we can offer over there and, um, and different promotion offers that are going on at, at the time. Um, I think we're at, I think we're very, very close to a high number of coaches. It's been booming. So we, we, we're gonna keep that service going and, and the community's growing all the time. So, yep. Thank you very much for listening, uh, DD Sports Science uh, Locker Room Podcast. And thank you again to Aussie, and we'll see you soon.